So the basic simple premise of the series is we want to take a few weeks just to talk about what it looks like to lead the next generation to Jesus. Last week was an amazing introductory session where it really talked about the whole nature of what's been called Generation Z, the, the youngest emerging generation. And we went through some details about who they are, what their preferences are, kind of how they see the world. So if you missed last week, I highly encourage you to go back and just learn about this generation because it's really hard to love someone whom you don't understand. So last week was really foundational. Today we're going to get super practical. But before I get into today's message, I just have to share something that I uncovered this week that really bothered me. It, it, it shocked me and it troubled me. As, as I was looking at Generation Z and some things that are coming up and just how things are developing in our world, I was saddened and I was shocked to learn that mullets are back. <laughs> Have any of you noticed this? Mullets are making a comeback. It's where it's business in the front, short hair, and then long hair party in the back. Yeah, that's, that's what a mullet is. So they're making this comeback. Just think Patrick Swayze. If you're from the older generation, like, or um, a few other people probably come to mind too. But um, mullets are making a comeback. So maybe you've seen NFL players start the season with a mullet. Some of them still have it. You've maybe seen some celebrities, both male and female, who are rocking the mullets lately. And it's just making a comeback. And here's a little window into my world. If, if you were to look at my Google search history, you would see things like, why are mullets back? I don't know why, but I'm increasingly interested in things like this. So why are mullets back? And long story short, nobody can really point to one instance or one influence that caused mullets to come back into our culture and into our society, but they are back. Um, some might point to um, Joe Exotic, if you're familiar with that Netflix thing. Some might point to Joe Dirt. I don't think it was Joe Dirt. I think it was Joe Dirt, Joe Dirt 2, maybe that just made the, the mullet more, um, more popular again. But long story short, we don't know where the influence came from. Mullets are just back. And here's, here's where we're going. Influences are really everywhere, and they're nowhere. Like, how did mullets become a thing again? We don't know, but it's just this gradual shifting of culture, of the way we view things, that it became not only normal, but in some cases popular. I even saw some um, high school students here at North Cross donning the mullet for a while this year, and I thought that was awesome. I thought that was amazing. But I don't think it would work for me. Influences are everywhere. They, they are also nowhere. You can't really put your finger on where something started or when it started or who started it. There's just this general consensus. Now, this is one thing when it comes to mullets. It's another thing when it comes to morality. Influences are one thing when it comes to your style. It's another thing when it comes to your spirituality. The influences in this world are everywhere and nowhere, and they don't just affect the way we do our hair. They affect the way we see the world and what we believe about the world. And as you think back to your childhood, maybe what you thought is you didn't see influences in the world. You just saw the world. You just thought that was the way it was. You see pictures of me back in 1990, and you'll see I just fit in with the guest jeans and the rolled up cuffs and all that stuff. 
It's just the way the world was. But the older you get, the more you see these influences come and go and come and go, and you start to see the pattern. What we're going to get into today is what will help the next generation identify the things that are really influencing them. What we all need throughout life are authority figures who can help us see through all of the influences that are in our world. Some of the influences from the world, and guess what? Some influences even from our very own hearts. And what we're going to see today is that authority figures help sort through what can influence you. They, they help you take a step back from things and say, you see what you're doing right here? This is where it's going to go. You see what the world is doing or what your friends are doing? You see what's popular? This is where it came from. Authority figures help you sort through all of the things that can influence you so that hopefully you can make sense of the things that try to give you some influence. And what we're going to see today is the primary authority figures that Generation Z will have. We could argue that more than ever, they've been inundated with influences from around them and within them and on their very phones. So what can we do to give them the authority figures they need in order to see through and sort through everything that can influence them? And here's where I want to start. First of all, all of you, regardless of who you are, all of you are or will be an authority figure for the next generation. Even if you're 80, 90, 100 years old, you are an authority figure for the next generation. If you're 10 years old, eventually you will be an authority figure for the next generation. And in some ways, you already are. God has called each of us in some degree or another to be authority figures. But what I want to focus on is who has the most authority in the room. Now, as you think about a child's life, a child's week, I figured there's about 100 hours, 100 hours, if you want to think of it visually, 100 hours of time that they have in any given week when they are awake and alert. So this is assuming they have about 9.568 hours of sleep. I did my math this week. Um, of these 100 hours, where do they spend the most time? Home with parents. How much of that time, though? As you think about it, I did the math, I did some research, 60 of those hours are spent at home. Where is the remaining time spent? And just know this, when I talk about home, I mean this might include sports, this might include sleepovers, so you know, parents kind of have guard over those 60 hours, they can decide what their child does with it, but 60 hours at home, um, if you, unless you homeschool, you've got 38 hours spent at school, during the school year in any given week, unless you have after-school programs, you know, the numbers can shift, but for the most part, about 38 hours at school, and then guess where the last best-case scenario, the last two hours go? To church. Um, assuming you come, you know, on a Sunday, and assuming that maybe on a Wednesday night you bring them to North Cross Youth, the church gets about two hours. So let me just ask you, when it comes to the influences that are inundating Generation Z, who are the best authority figures to help guide them through it? If I were you, I'd say, can, can the church just do that? It's really complicated. And sometimes I think the same thing. Pastor Ben, can you just fix stuff going on? But here's the thing. God has delegated authority to parents. 
And it's not just a time thing that I can point to on a graph, but in his word, God has delegated this authority to parents. So here's what we know just from basic math. The authority that God gives cannot be delegated. You cannot replace 60% of a child's life and just say, go over here to sort through all the things that are influencing you. It's, it's a matter of math that tells us that this can't be delegated to someone else. And here's the other thing that we have to keep in mind. This is gonna be a little heavy, but we're gonna see some good news in, in, a, in, a, bit, in a minute. Um, the authority that God gives you should not be neglected. Because guess what? If we neglect, as parents, if we neglect the authority that we have over our kids, the influences around them and within them will be quick to fill in that gap. So here's where we're going today. We want to see how God provides authority figures for all of us, but specifically, he provides authority figures at home where it's most important for this next generation And we're going to turn to the book of Deuteronomy, which is an Old Testament book of the Bible written about 1500 BC. We're going to turn to this book of the Bible for some modern day advice on how to parent the next generation. So the book of Deuteronomy, it's a book where the the children of Israel, the Israelites, are finally about to enter this new land that had been promised. And this is a lot of history. We're going to condense it real tight. so, So buckle in, lean in. Here we go. Uh, the, the Israelites had been promised this new land from God, but because of the disobedience of Moses and his generation, God said that Moses and his generation would not get to enter this land. It would be the next gen, the next generation that would be allowed to enter. So what Moses did was since he couldn't guide the people into this land, he wrote out the first five books of the Bible so that they would have something to take with them as they entered this land. It was going to be a guide for who they were, where they came from, and ultimately what God had called them to. But Deuteronomy is unique because in Deuteronomy, it's specifically preparing the next generation to enter this new land. It's speaking to this new emerging generation and it's telling them, when you enter this land, here's what you should do. Here are some important things to remember. In fact, many commentators look at Deuteronomy and they say this was basically a home textbook for how to train your, spirit, your, your, um, your children spiritually. It's your catechism book for home. It's, it's what you can use to teach and instruct. And as Moses wrote this, it was kind of his final book, his final farewell, where he repeated some important things and taught the next generation what they needed to know. But what's most important about Deuteronomy is we don't see him saying, hey, parents, bring your kids to church. We kind of see the opposite. We see Moses addressing the parents of this next generation, and he's saying, when it comes to the authority figures, the authority figures in the home are the most important. And he's going to show why as we look into this today. In fact, what we're going to see are a few principles that will help parents, even to this day, understand the importance of their authority at home. And then, even to top it off, even though this book is so ancient, we're going to see three practical ways to help lead the next generation to Jesus. So we're going to dive into that today. Um, Finally, last thing on this slide, uh, we're going to see three ways to be intentional at home. So we're going to dive into Deuteronomy chapter 6, understanding this is part of a, a larger book that was intended to help teach the next generation what is most important for them to remember. This was a guidebook for parents 
to help lead their kids to God. And here's how chapter six begins. Moses writes, these are the commands, decrees, and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. And I'm going to kind of pause here and there and just, you know, take a jab at parents because I am one and I'm jabbing myself here. But when it comes to parenting, what purpose do your rules serve? When it comes to parenting, you have rules, guidelines, you have disciplines that you put into place. What purpose do they serve? See, when, when Moses writes this, he's saying there's laws, commands, decrees, and I'm going to share a lot of rules with you, but they don't serve me. I'm just sharing with you what God has given to me. And here's something that might just be a jab to the side. When it comes to godly authority, godly authority does not serve itself. Godly authority is a conduit to God authority. Godly authority is a conduit to God's authority. And we're going to see this play out where it's really not about Moses. It's not about keeping the best interests of the parents in mind, but this is about the best interests of the next generation. That's how their discipline work, and that's how their rules and commands work. So what does that look like for you? Have you ever maybe put a rule down where it was more about your best interests, about your need for peace, about your need for quiet, your need for order, than it was in the best interests of your kids? We're going to see how this unfolds here a little bit more. But as we see this, the first principle we see is that godly authority is simply a conduit to God's authority. And then he goes on. He says, these commands that I give you, um, make sure that you keep them so that you, your children, and their children after them, this is going to be a generational thing, they may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. The reason for these commands is, number one, to keep you focused on God. It's not about the best interests of the parents. It's about keeping the children connected to God. And the second thing is that when you keep these commands, there will be a benefit for you in this life. Your life will turn out better when you listen to God and apply his truth to your life. And as you think about this, you see these principles unfolding. Godly authority is a conduit to God's authority, and the end result is for the blessing of those who are under authority. Maybe what comes to mind for you is that moment where Jesus had to step his disciples aside and say, you see everyone out there? They're, they're, they're pushing their authority over those beneath them. They're getting something from them. But Jesus said, not so with you. When you have authority, it is so that you can give something for those who are beneath you. So godly authority, a conduit to God's authority, and is for the benefit of those who are under you. And finally, here's where we get to something real interesting, because in, verse, in this next verse, we're going to see this, this encouragement to not lose out on something God wanted them to have. Here, Israel. And whenever you see here in Deuteronomy, basically Moses is saying, hey, I know I'm losing the attention of the kids. Lean in, listen up. I know. He's clapping his hands. Hear this, hear this, hear Israel, and be careful to obey it so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised to you. God has a a preferred future in mind for you. And we know that there's going to be influences in this new land 
There's going to be nations around you who are pulling you to adopt their customs. There's going to be the land itself that will cause you with its bounty to want to forget the God who brought you there. So Moses says, here, listen, lean in. Don't forget, be careful, because the blessing you're about to receive, you have to remember that it came from God himself. And then verse five, verse four, as we're about to see, is, is this amazing verse where Jews for, for hundreds of years would use this as something they would repeat every day. It was something that served as the foundation, the anchor for how they saw the world and what they believed about themselves and God. Here, lean in. Here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. In English, kind of clunky, but in Hebrew, the meaning is simple, where the, the Savior God is yours. The God of the universe is yours. And there is only one of him, and he is yours. Of all the nations on earth, he picked you. He picked Abraham. He picked the descendants of Abraham. The God of everything is yours. And as the Israelites over the years would repeat this, this, uh, f- this verse out loud, it would be a constant reminder of who God was and the amazing privilege they had to say that the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, is our God. And there is no other. And this is a good principle for parenting, that when it comes to teaching the next generation about Jesus, God, um, God doesn't want this to be done in a vacuum. I know... Um, a common parenting technique can be to, can be more hands-off to say, well, you know, this is their personal faith. I'm just going to give my opinion, but then kind of let them figure it out on their own. But when Moses gave these instructions, he says, no, leave no vacuum, leave no space, share with them who God is and why it is such a privilege that we can call him our father and why it is we can do that. This is the responsibility of parents to help lead the next generation to Jesus. You, rem- you remember who God is, and you remember what an honor and privilege that he should love us enough to make us his own. And when you remember that, it's going to have this natural result. Remember who God is, and then this will happen. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Focusing on God's love for us, first and foremost, will result in a reflecting of his love back to him in your life. Now, as you think about all this, here's the big thing I hope you take away from this. Godly authority is a conduit to God's authority. But as you think about practical ways and maybe a principle to take with you, I put it this way for number two on your sheets. Godly authority focuses on what can be done for the next generation, not what we can get from them, not what we expect from them, but what we can do for them. Sometimes being harsh in discipline, if it is required, sometimes just demonstrating for them what it means to honor God above all else. But what everything we do is done with the simple motivation that this is what we can do for, what we can do for them. And I'll tell you what, as long as I keep that in mind in my parenting, as long as we can all keep that in mind in our homes, what we can do for the next generation, it'll be hard for the next generation to reject it. But they might. 
As we see the story unfold for Moses, for the Israelites, if we look past Deuteronomy into Joshua and Judges, we're going to see that even though this was the perfect parenting model that, that Moses shared with the Israelites, it was not going to work. It was not going to work. Um, the, the generation that first entered into Canaan, into this new land, it, it worked pretty well. There was one issue, if you look at uh, Joshua chapter 7, there was this guy named Achan who kind of messed things up for a while, but they figured that out. They sorted through it. But then as they established their land, and you get into the book of Judges, it was disobedience. It was falling from God. It was forgetting about God. So in just a moment, we're going to address that. We're going to talk about what it means to be a parent when you feel like a failure. Just know, as we get into these specifics, and it's going to get pretty specific, that the people who read this first would have related with you perfectly. So here's where we get really practical. Verse 6, Moses says, These commandments that I give you today are to be not just in a book that you keep in a temple or in a synagogue. These aren't just to be written on some stone, but these are to be in your hearts because it's not about obedience. It's about loving the Lord your God with all your heart soul, and strength. And you cannot command love. It has to be something from the heart. And then he says, impress them. Impress them on your children, which it's a really interesting Hebrew word because in every other way we see this in the, in the Old Testament, and it's a pretty rare word, it often means to sharpen something, like to sharpen a blade or to sharpen arrows. And in a, few, a couple places, it talks about sharpening a person's tongue in a way where it's being disciplined and focused. And the implication is that children are impressionable. They will be influenced by something. But Moses says, parents, it's your role, it's your responsibility to sharpen the next generation, to, to impress upon them what is most important. And then instead of just leaving at this and letting the Israelites figure it out on their own, Moses provides three practical ways that parents can help lead their kids to, to God, three ways that still work for us today. Way number one in verse seven, he says, talk about them. Talk about what God says when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. In whatever manner of life you might be in, it's an opportunity for a conversation. And I find it interesting where he picked four different places where parents and children really have each other's full attention. You know, sitting at home, they didn't have iPhones and stuff back then, and they just had to sit and look at each other and talk. It was weird. They did it. it they survived, too. When they walked places, they didn't have screens in their cars and, you know, hey, can I get my iPad? It was, they walked. They talked. It was weird. And then, you know, when they lay down at night and when they got up in the morning, they didn't have to check their phones. They didn't have to catch up on emails. They, they talked. And Moses said, in these natural moments where you have time together with your child, would you leverage that for a conversation about your faith? It's easy when we come to church and on the ride home to say, hey, that was really cool. What'd you think about that? Good, yeah, and this and this and this. There, there are easy times, but Moses says, would you pick the natural moments of pauses in your life where you can simply have a conversation. This is real easy. Um, number three, we're going to have three things. The first thing is make faith conversational. 
Find those moments in your life where you have a natural time together, where maybe you force yourselves to put down the electronics, turn off the the TVs, all those things just to say, hey, how's it going? How how is God working in your life today? How can I pray for you? And and what I found as a a, a child growing up is my mom was really good at this. Mom, if you're listening, I love you. Um, She was really good at just in in the most unexpected ways, We'd be driving down the road, and she said, isn't it amazing how God made the trees? You know, the way that they change colors and all this stuff, and just these little ways that she would make faith conversational. What would that look like for you this week? Whether you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a teacher, what would it look like for you just in those moments where nothing's going on, where you make faith conversational? Uh, we got to keep moving. Uh, Moses also says this. The second thing, he says, tie these truths, these teachings, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. So on your way out today, we're going to have little Bibles you can strap to your heads and tie to your... <laughs> no, actually, they literally did this back in Moses' day. They would find things and, and make these symbols and tie them on their heads and, and put them on their hands. The... Um, The symbolism was everything you do is focused on what God wants you to do, and everything you think, everything you plan is focused on what God wants you to think and plan. But it was more than that. If you look carefully, he doesn't say, bind these on your children. He says, parents, tie these as symbols on your hands and put them on your foreheads so that when your children look at you, they can see someone who doesn't just go to temple or synagogue once a week or go to church and call it good, but they see someone who in everyday life is taking seriously the faith that they believe. What would that look like for you? Uh, The second thing for number three, if we make faith applicable, what what would that look like for you this week? In those moments where you could just be a normal person in an ordinary world, but instead you, you decide to make a symbolic reference to the faith that God has given you. That even though things might be horrible in this world and things didn't go the way you wanted in your day, still you can have a joy in your heart because God has declared you to be forgiven and loved. In everyday life, make your faith applicable. Put it into practice in a way that your children can see. You won't always be perfect, but what would happen if this week you took one step in that? Then this last practical thing is really interesting. Uh, Moses says this. He says, write these commands, these laws, these truths, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so I picture, you know, just taking a magic marker and writing some things all over your house and maybe some of you have like what we have at my house, which is you got a little you know, thing on the wall that says blessed. You know, is, is, that what, is that what Moses had in, in mind? Well, what was interesting for me is the placement. He, he says, write them on the door frames. And when do you see a door frame? It's, when you, it's pretty simple. I know you know this. When you come in or when you go out, when do you see your gate? When you see your garage door, it's when you come in or when you go out. And you think about that, and regardless of who walks into your house or whenever they leave your house, there's always this picture that what you believe in your heart applies to the world around you. So yeah, make faith conversational, make faith applicable. But the third thing, don't forget this, also make faith portable. 
so that the way you teach it to your kids, it's not just confined to one area of life, but it applies to all, all of life. And this is really interesting. The way that Moses taught people back in about 15 or 1400 BC still applies in so many ways to us today. And maybe this is just worth the price of your attention, where you think through three things maybe you could do this week, how to make faith conversational, how to make it applicable, how to make it portable, as you think about the next generation and how we help them sort through all the influences that are trying to carry them away. But, but, I know some of you, some of you are thinking right now what I would be thinking, which is, okay, I'm kind of good at this, so I'm going to teach my kids about this. But I'm not really qualified to teach them about this because of my past or because of what I'm going through in my present. Some of us might feel underqualified to do what God has entrusted parents to do. And as I think about it, a lot of us might go home and if we changed a bunch of stuff, our kids might turn to us and say, well, who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to tell me to live my life in this way when you've done this? And it would seem hypocritical to expect from the next generation what we ourselves have been so bad at. Is that you? Where you would go home and make all these changes and start this, but then you're like, ah, my kids, are, they're going to see through this. They're going to see that I'm not what I ask them to be. And if that's you, you're in good company. Just get this. The, the, the people that Moses gave this to had ruined it already. Moses' entire generation had lost the land that God promised, that they missed out on it because of their disobedience and selfishness and short-sightedness. And yet Moses wasn't afraid to say, do what we didn't do. He didn't worry about being hypocritical because Moses knew that the authority for parents was simply a conduit to God's authority. It was about what God wanted for the children, for the next generation. And so maybe even some of us can say, well, we're, we're, we're an example of what not to do. And maybe that's what Moses said in some occasions. Hey, I'm asking you to do this and don't do what I did. Okay, so he actually recorded in detail his downfall, his failure with the hopes that the next generation would learn from it. But Moses did so not in despair. He did so knowing that, knowing that he was still loved by God because his, his hope was not in his own performance. His hope was in God's promise that ultimately he would fulfill in some generation to come, that one day someone different would come. Someone different who, whom God's laws would be on his heart not just in a book, but on his heart, who, who would make faith conversational in every way possible, who would make faith applicable to the lives of everyday people and would make faith portable so that people could remember it in every situation. You see, generation after generation after Moses completely failed at it. You get through the time of the judges where it was a cycle of disobedience and God would step into rescue. Disobedience, God would step into rescue. You get to the time of the kings and finally Israel had kings and you would think this will fix them, but it didn't. Within a generation, the kingdom was split and there were cycles of disobedience and failure all the way through the fourth century BC where God had to send prophet after prophet to say, why are you doing this? Just remember my love for you and love one another, but 
people couldn't, until finally, Jesus came. And he broke this cycle. Finally came someone who could keep this law perfectly, who could do what God expected him to do. And parents, this is why this is a big deal. If all we can teach the next generation is what we got right, we will have very little to teach. But if we can teach them what it means that we have received grace, we will give them everything they need. As you think about your personal failures from your past or your present, that is an opportunity to teach your kids what grace means. That it restores you as a child of God to a place where having received his love and forgiveness, you can teach the next generation the blessing of staying with him. And ultimately, this is what Moses had in mind too. He gave these practical ways to teach the next generation. He, he acknowledged, hey, we're an example of what not to do, but because of who God is, because we're simply a conduit to his authority, we're gonna show you grace. A classroom with a teacher is the best place to teach rules, but a home with a family is the best place to teach love. So as a conclusion, here's what Moses said. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, it's going to be amazing. You're going to, there's going to be so much stuff there and life is going to be different. Be careful. I know you're going to be influenced by all the good things around you to forget about God. So would you be careful and do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And as he concludes, it's so interesting to see him return to that point of God's undeserved grace for them. God was their God. The Lord of all creation was theirs. And that was to be at the heart and core of everything they would do as a people. So parents, I hope this helps you in your mind. Be intentional with some things that you can do this week to make faith conversational, make it applicable, make it portable. Not teaching your kids what you got right, but teaching them what love looks like from God and for one another. And for the next generation, we always want to end with a little piece of advice for the next generation. I know we're talking about you for most of the message, but we also want to acknowledge your presence in the room and, and listening. So for the next generation, I know that it can be difficult to listen to authority sometimes because they don't know what it's like. <laughs> they don't know the influences that are forcing me to do this or that. They don't know the pressures. Just hear me out. We know more than you think. And here's my closing encouragement for the next gen. Would you not just put up with godly authority, but would you seek it? And when the authority that's coming to you seems off base or out of balance, would you maybe ask the question, thank, thank you for sharing this. How does this help me stay close to God? Would you realign in your heart that the purpose of godly authority is to be a conduit to God's authority that helps you stay connected to him? And as you seek godly authority, just keep in mind, one day, you will get to provide it for the next generation. One day, you will get to share not just what you got right, not just what your parents got right, but you will get to share the love that makes you right with God every day. So today was more about focusing on the home and what we get to do as parents 
to help lead the next generation to Jesus. Um, I hope you can come back next week because we're going to focus on the blessing, even though it's a small percentage, but the blessing of what we can do together as a church to help lead the next generation to Jesus. And it's incredible to see what parents can do as the church to do just that. Let's pray. Dear Father, through the wisdom of Moses, you led a generation of your people into a new land so that they would be able to adapt to a new life and enjoy some new blessings, all while remembering the God who gave it. There were a lot of influences for them, but these principles held them stay on track, at least for a while. More than anything, I pray that we as parents would not look at our kids for the results of our success, but that we would look to you. We can never ultimately control what happens with the next generation, but we can simply do our part to be a mirror or a window that shows them what it means to live by grace. Uh, our purpose as parents is not just to teach rules and to demand obedience, but it is to point them to the grace that empowers them to live with joy. Help us each to do that. Whatever authority we might have over the next generation, whether it's just a passing glance or a smile we can share, I pray that our authority would be used to be a conduit to your authority so that another generation can continue to praise and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.